Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to another new episode of the Declutter Me podcast with myself, Shalina. This week, my guest is Claire Anderson of Clutter Free and Organized. Claire is a board certified behavior analyst and the founder of Clutter Free. She spent 15 years in America working in various exciting jobs, which we're going to discuss shortly. And in 2014, she returned to the UK and did a master's in behavior analyst analysis even. Now, in addition to being a professional declutterer, she is a behavior analysis specializing in ASD and autism. So welcome, Claire, to the Declutter Me podcast. Hi, Selena. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So this is so exciting. So, I mean, we've talked recently because I had a client with ASD. And then when we started talking, I was like, we need to chat more with this, you know, and I'm sure it's going to help lots of people. But you have such a diverse background. So tell me first, what were you doing before you became an organizer? I started off in hospitality. I worked in London for a couple of years in um, restaurant management. And then I moved to the States and went into yachting, which is like restaurant management, but very, very luxurious, very, very, you know, six star, if you will. And um, I did that for a really, really long time. So I started off as a stewardess and then became a purser, which is a bit like running a hotel, but it's a floating, very fancy hotel. Yeah. So I worked all over the world and the guys I worked for had very big states and I ended up working land-based as well for a short period of time. And and it was great. It was really, really good. I did that until 2011 when my son was born. Really difficult job to do with a child. So I uh, left and came back to the UK. Oh, wow. And so what spurred you to take a a master's in behavior analysis? And what is it? So uh, behavior analysis is a, um, a scientific approach to behavior. So we see everything that a human does as behavior what we feel is behavior everything mm. we do sleeping is behavior um the eating is a behavior uh if we treat everything as behavior it's very easy to strip that down to its basic tenets and then you can create an intervention based on that i got into this field simply because my child was diagnosed with uh, autism at the age of two right okay so I did a lot of research on how to help a child who had autism. He was really quite severe. They told me he would never speak and never go to normal school. He would be probably in residential care. I mean, the outlook was very, very gloomy for right. us. So, and I, I'm quite stubborn, was prepared to accept that. So I did a lot of research and looked at a ton of different interventions from the wacky to the, the scientific and. Yeah. ABA, which is what we call applied behavioral analysis, is really struck a chord with me because it's got a very, very scientific, it's empirically based. Right. And it's 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 a very sound approach. There's no guesswork, there's no anecdotes, it's all scientific method. So I employed experts who could help me, but I decided very quickly that I wanted to be the expert in my child's life and not employ someone else if there was a way to help him it was me that was going to do it so mm-hmm. the only way to do that was to become board certified so I went back to university 
I studied for three years and then you have to do like a thousand clinic hours before you can sit the big boards exam. And oh, wow. I that. So now I'm board certified. So it helped me help him immensely. But then I was able obviously to turn it into a career as well, which I'm still doing. That's amazing. And 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 it's it's so useful as well. And and there's not that many people who've done it as well to to use it for, uh, here in the UK, it's getting it's becoming a bigger field, but it's still very difficult to find professionals, and the cost is very prohibitive for many many families, which yeah, is a real yeah. shame. I know that people like fly over here to help people as well, yeah. so it, it it is a thing. So, um, so then, what made you become uh, start clutter free and become an organizer? You know, after doing this, so. It's a really overwhelming job sometimes. When I go to a new client for the first time, it's a highly emotive environment. They've often just had a diagnosis. They're terrified. And I know exactly how that feels because I've been in the shoes. Yeah. So every day when I go, I, so I live with ASD at home, do the best I can for my son. And then I go to work and I live ASD at work. And it became, I guess I got burnt out. It right. became really draining. And I felt that I wasn't giving a hundred percent because I was just so it's overwhelmed and sad all the time so post pandemic I thought you know maybe I should just cut my hours down take on less clients and then all of a sudden a friend asked me in the new year just this year to um, help her sort out her kitchen and then another friend asked me to help sort out her garage because I'm known for being the organized one right okay I suddenly thought well, this reminds me of my old job. You know, I would go to a new yacht and they'd ask me to, you know, reorganize the yacht and detach yeah, yeah. the yacht. Or, and I thought, oh, why don't I just do this? You know, it just seemed to all click together. So yeah. I created a website, did some Instagram posts, did a bit of a blog. And by February, I was up and running. Oh, and I'm so busy now. I'm rushed off my feet. It's it's really, really good. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Touch wood. Yeah. <laughs> touch wood keep going, yeah. But are you using, so now though you can use your organizing skills with your, you know, the ASD skills that you've learned, uh, I mean, the behavior and analysis skills you've learned as well? Yeah, they all magically fit together really, really quite well. So I often find that when I um, approach a declutter project with my behavior analysis hat on, it's, it's quite easy to take the emotion out of it mm. for me and for the client. Yeah, yeah. You know, I say to them, you know, when, when you start, you have to look at this like a project, you know, look at these things as just project things, decide what you need for your project and what you don't need for your project. Mm. And it makes us be able to get through the decluttering system quite easily. It doesn't work for every single client because obviously everybody's different, yeah. you know, but it's, it, it helps me to approach it that way because then I don't get, Decluttering is, you know, as you know, it's, it can be highly emotive. And if I yeah, don't get caught up in that, I can keep my my behavior hat on and talk using my behavior analysis steps. So that's actually quite useful. That's really good because, yeah, it can be, it is very emotionally mm. tiring. Um, and I say it to clients, they're going to be mentally tired and physically tired. Yeah. And sometimes with certain clients, yeah, it can be emotionally draining for me as well. So, yeah, I need to watch a lot of... Um, real real um housewives to just sort of decompose i was gonna say have you seen a uh, below deck as well have you seen that oh uh, i have i'm not a fan i, our <laughs> I wonder why actually, our crew was actually approached about 
14 years ago, if we wanted to actually be part of that project, when yeah. it first started, there was a lot of buzz about it. And uh, the owner of our boat said if we even spoke to the producers, we'd all be fired. So, oh, okay. yeah, that's not... That was good. Yeah, and, and every single um, colleague of mine on other boats, all our friends, they were all told the same. You, you do not talk to the producers. They weren't allowed on the docks. They were refused entry into most marinas. Oh, really? So the, um, yeah, so the kind of people that you see when you watch Below Decks, it's not really indicative of what's going on in the industry, yeah, shall we say? I can imagine, yeah. It's a bit like the Love Island of yachting. It's not. <laughs> I don't think any of those people would probably get a job on another yacht. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm sure they won't. So anyway, let's let's get away from uh, real life TV. Um, well, semi-real life. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you about ASD because of, you know, your experience and because of been, we've been chatting. And there's so much we can talk about, but let's talk about children and the experience you have in relation to decluttering and organizing them. Um, so what is a typical age of diagnosis and the struggles that you see when working with families who've got diagnosed children with AS with ASD? So diagnosis can happen anytime from sort of two onwards. And depending on where you are in the world or in the in the country in the UK, um, the diagnosis system is different. Right. So here where I live, it's a multifaceted <laughs> approach. It takes people from education, edu- education psychology, psychology, pediatricians, health wow. visitors, all of those people have to submit their own reports as well with a parent report. Put those all together, it goes to a review panel. They review it twice. This can take up to two years. And since the pandemic, the waiting list is even longer. Mm-hmm. And then you will probably, if it gets that far, you're probably going to get a diagnosis because they will tell you where I am if they think that there's actually something else going on. Right. Um, before the pandemic, it was quite easy to get a diagnosis. And now it's incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. Um the age is quite dependent on how the ASD uh, presents. Um, a, a big factor of ASD is that you have a child who has a massive speech delay. Now, my right. child didn't speak at all until he was almost at school, not at all. We had to teach every single word to him. Right. When you get a two-and-a-half-year-old that's not speaking any words whatsoever, a diagnosis is really quite straightforward because that's such a massive indicator. But when you get a child who has very high verbal skills and very high cognitive skills, that diagnosis might not happen until they're in their teens because the the ASD has been there all the time, but it's not really visible until they start to struggle in more advanced social settings. So when you have a child who's diagnosed much, much later, the intervention process can actually be more difficult, not less difficult, Mm -hmm. because they've had so many years of um, not getting any help. Yeah. yeah, And they start to hide what they feel is autism because they recognize that they are different to other children. So it, it, it presents yeah. a lot of challenges no matter how – when you first find out that your child's autistic, your goal is to have them speak. You want them to be able to speak, and you think that all the problems will go away once that happens, and unfortunately that is not the case. There's no, a no. lot of other things going on. So the, the range of difficulties that I'm asked to help with are primarily speaking – Right. Um, because children who are not able to communicate their needs have the most um, immense frustration. And that yeah. is demonstrated in tantrums and sensory meltdowns because they can't describe how they're feeling or what they want. So th- those are the probably the big three. After that, I would say sleep problems, eating problems. Oh. Uh, they have lack of play skills, lack of social skills. 
um, lack of academic help, because if you've got a child who can't demonstrate skills through voice, they often get skipped over in school because wow. they're assumed that they don't understand, whereas that's actually not the case at all. Often children who are unable to communicate with you and understand everything that's going on around them, they just can't demonstrate that. Yeah, yeah. And they usually so have amazing skills in certain yeah. field that they have to find out isn't it you know like the creative or maths you know yeah um so I'm, i've heard right the terms asc and asd what is the difference asd is autism spectrum disorder that's the medical term so whenever you look if a parent looks at any records from a hospital or a pediatrician they're going to see asd right so ASC is autism spectrum condition, and that is more a term that is used by parents and organizations that are trying to be very inclusive, because just okay. because you have autism doesn't actually mean you have a disorder. It is listed as disability, and which is actually not a bad thing, because it means because it's a disability that parents are often able to access funding yeah. and help that they wouldn't be able to otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, um, yeah. But the language about autism can be really, really emotive. So we used to say autistic children, and now we're more likely to say child with autism. Right, okay. Um, people used to say that the child suffered from autism, and that is now considered not the case because it's not something that – you just not like suffering from cancer. It's something that you – it's a lifelong condition that you can adapt to. Right, okay. So yeah. the, the language can be, can be quite difficult. And then – when you, the other really tricky one is that it's very tempting often to talk about the child with autism versus the normal child. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which you can imagine when you're constantly as a parent being told that your child is not normal, that that can be quite harsh. So we tend to use the word neurotypical and neurodiverse. Right. Ah. Okay. Yes, I've heard those terms. Yeah. Yeah. And. Some parents really don't care about the language. They just want you to help their child as best as possible. Yeah. Some parents are really, really strong about the kind of language. So as a declutterer going into one of these families, I would suggest that you sit down and say, what are the terms that you want me to use and don't want me to use just so I don't cause offense? And most families, you know, they've lived with this for a while. They'll have a very frank conversation with you about the language they prefer. Right. Okay. But I mean, I've had from experience, you know, parents that are told they're new into this. They've just got the diagnosis. They've been told to change the family home and create safe places. And I mean, I didn't know yeah. about the term, so this is this is good to know. Um, but they're straight away thrown into it that you have yeah. to change the home, you have to create a play area, a sensory area. So what is the best way to start the journey? Because it's a minefield for them, you know, as well as dealing yeah. with the fact that, you know, they've had this diagnosis, you know, given to them as well. Yeah, so... There's often this this generic guide about autism that a lot of professionals think it's a one-fit-all situation. Yeah. Autism is a spectrum. So what is true for my child with autism is very different from some of his friends with autism. Mm. You know, it's, it's some adults you would never know that they had autism. It's very much a hidden disability. In other adults, it's very obvious yeah. that they need help. So it has to be approached on a very individual level. Or there's no cookie cutter solutions to this so if a family is told you need to make safe places you need to make sensory room you need to do this you need to do this that might not be the case for that particular family and if right. they go in and make all those changes they can create more trauma than is already there because yeah, change exactly. is hard for any <laughs> child yeah so 
I would say any changes need to be made slowly. Even a good change made too quickly can create trauma. Right. I would say that um, you need to, if possible, talk to the child's closest environmental people. So talk to the nursery. What do they play with at nursery? Because that might be totally different than what they do at home. Right. You need to talk to grandma. What do they enjoy doing at your place? Because that might be different at home. Mm-hmm. And then take all of these things and use that information to create the safe place and the sensory place. Right. Okay. When, when you when you create a safe place, you have to really consider um, things like elopement and escape, climbing, mouthing. Children with autism will often put things in their mouth that uh-huh. neurotypical children will grow out of doing that, but an ASD child might not. Right. Um, and self-harm also, is it can be, not self-harm in the way we talk about it as a trauma response for a neurotypical person, mm. but many severely autistic children don't recognize pain the way we do, and they don't display the way they feel pain the way we right. do. So they okay. hurt themselves with things accidentally but not actually have the understanding of pain to tell you where they are injured. So you have to be careful about what's in your safe place and in your sensory room. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't even, yeah. I just didn't even think of that. Like, yeah, that's. There's a lot going on, isn't there? Yeah. A lot. And, but as you said, it's a spectrum. So, I mean, I've dealt with yeah. people on the spectrum and I even had a client recently who was 30 and just been diagnosed. So, and, and it's different for everyone. So it's, it's difficult yeah. to navigate that. Um, so just in terms of the sensory rooms, the, the big thing about that is that we often think of sensory as lights and flashing things and spinning things, but one person's sensory wonderland can be another person's sensory torture chamber. Yeah. So you really have to design a sensory room based on what kid needs. You can't assume that because they are on the spectrum that flashy light-up things are pleasant. Yeah. Some... I've come across kids that fidget spinner is like it's basically like juggling knives. They couldn't think of anything worse. Really? So, yeah, because yeah. yeah, a lot of them are being you given. The, the kid. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that's a good thing to think about because yeah, all of them recently I've seen they've got fidget spinners, and I was like, I thought this was out of fashion, but they're all using it. But as you said, it might not be the right thing for them. You know. Yeah. Um. So. You talk to me about social stories and I know talking to clients, they'd never heard of it as well. And this is one, you know, then I researched after we talked to explain social stories because it's so incredibly useful for, for uh, parents and for the kids as well, isn't it? Social stories are great for any age and yeah. they're actually really good for children that aren't on the spectrum as well that are going into new environments. So the first social story I ever used for my child was um, a transition from one class in his nursery to the other. Right. And his nursery were incredibly well informed on ASC and they actually helped me to, to put this into place. So they took real life pictures of the room he was in and they did a short video of going into the room that he's now going to be in. And they took a picture of um, his coat place with his name above it, where his books would go, where he would eat lunch, a picture of where he would do painting, a picture of where his new playground was. And, and they put it into a little booklet. And um, we sat down and did it with him in the nursery. And then right. I did it with him at home once a day. And then leading up to him starting we would take him and the little book into the nursery and we'd show him the picture and then show him the real life thing. Wow, that's amazing. And it worked really well. He was sort of 
familiar with it. It's, it's like when you go to the website and you Google all the images you can about the hotel you're going to on your next vacation. Yeah. That's basically you creating your own social story. Yeah, yeah. Where are we going to eat dinner? What does the beach look like? Yeah. So I, these are becoming more and more popular. Airlines do them now for children who have never flown or autistic adults who have never flown. Oh, and they're wow. really, really helpful. So a social story for decluttering um, could be pictures taken within the family home showing what it would look like to take something and put it in a box and then take it to the car and then take it to the charity shop or take it to the donation station or give it away or take it to the tip. Or, yeah. So it would show every step of the process and it would be just one item, I would say, not boxes full of stuff. Yeah. And then you'd have to explain very carefully that we're only going to get rid of the things we don't need. So you yeah. show a picture of a toy that we don't play with anymore. And you could put a line through it or something, or you could fold it to show that that's gone. Then you'd put that picture in the box, and then you'd show the box going. And then the next social story could be the actual object in the box. Right. And then that and then going to... And you'd practice that until you felt you had a sense that the child understood what that meant. And then you'd, pr- you'd do it with the, the, the real thing. Wow, that's amazing. Because, I mean, when we I was working with that client and, you know, we discussed it, you know, you said some children um, are happy to be involved, uh, but, yeah. you know, a lot of children are not. And I mean, I know working with children that some just have to be away. It, it's painful for them to be there because they want to go through the toys again or they're just, you know, noisy. Whereas this child wanted to be involved, which was surprising even Fantastic. for me. Yeah. Um, and it was an amazing session because then we, you know, I became her auntie Shalina. Like, you know, I've got another little niece now because she just wanted to be by my side and we went through everything together. And I like explaining to people that we're giving it to poor people, you know, to people who are less fortunate than them. Um, and she loved that story that it's, yeah. and, it, and I mean, it's reality, not even a story that we're just going to give the toys to somebody who needs the toys more than her um, and that she's got this amazing toys and her room was going to get changed as well because it was very old and the parents wanted to change it up as well. Um, so, but what is your thoughts, you know, with um, with the transition, I suppose, of um, decluttering and organising in, in bedrooms with kids? That word <laughs> transition is a huge word for people on the spectrum. Um, transition for someone on the spectrum is is moving from one location to the other and right. it can be them moving to the location and we, we can be talking moving from like say my table here to the sofa over there that yeah. that is a transition it, we're not talking about going from house to house it can be a very small step that is completely overwhelming right. so so when you think that the transition is not just someone moving but an object moving it's you would really have to practice, practice, practice with the child with a lot of patience to see where their tolerance lies. Right. Now, you, you can actually build that tolerance up in small steps, which I think is a really important thing to do because being able to declutter and then organize your space is a life skill. It's yep. not just something that I think people should do every couple of years yep. when they get bored. It's, it's, it's something, it's an ongoing project. And if you yeah. can teach that to a child who is on the spectrum, you built a lifelong skill for them that mm. they will need to, to keep their helps them keep their sanity having, having a clear uncluttered home is yeah. a really really calming effect so if a child is open to that process that is fantastic if they're not open to that process then, then you need to teach it right okay 
and the way you teach it is like with the social story, one item at a time. And then you do a room at a time or a cupboard at a time mm-hmm. just to show them that that transition is manageable. Right. The, uh... If you've got, if you desperately need to declutter and you've got a child that can't tolerate it, what I would do is show them a before and after of a different home to show what it can look like before and after and say, oh, now we're going to do that here. Take the child out and then show them. iPhones are great for this. Before they go back into the house, you can show them on the phone, what does the house look like now? Yeah. So that when they walk in, they're prepared for that. Yeah, so they don't have the shock. And it it, exactly, it makes that transition less stressful. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good thing to do because, yeah, then it's too much for their heads, isn't it? That that if they see their new room and it's just completely changed and everything's gone, they think everything's gone even if it's organized properly into proper systems. So, yeah, yeah, no, this is amazing. So what are your top tips to get people started with decluttering and organizing, especially, you know, when they've got kids with ASD? Definitely start small. I um I would suggest that if, if it's specifically the child's room you want to start with, have them pick a single drawer or a single little box. Mm-hmm. Children on the spectrum tend to collect really, really random things. I worked with a, um, a family a long time ago who are no longer my clients, so I can talk about them. But um, they um, had never decluttered, and they had a, a early teen who had kept every little bit of anything he'd ever been given in his life. So you couldn't even walk into his room. It was so decluttered. So, so cluttered, definitely needed help. So he had a a box. You know those old little toys you used to get with the Happy Meals? I don't know if they still Yes, yeah. Yeah, still have them. Collect them. So he had a huge, huge box full of these. Right. And at the bottom, you can imagine, they were like decade old. They were all broken and cracked. So their first project was to throw away the broken ones. Yep. And what they found really quickly was that they they spent like a week doing like two broken ones at a time. Right. And by the end of the week, this was a natural project for him. It was like, oh, let's do the box. Right. And by the end of the week, he was doing it without any prompting. He practiced Amazing. it. He was doing it. And then he actually decided of his own will to go through and throw all the ones away that were blue. That's good. <laughs> he decided the blue wasn't the color he wanted anymore, and 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 then he decided that he didn't want the green ones, and so he was left with probably fifty yeah. percent. And he then picked out a shelf and arranged them all beautifully on his shelf, so they became like a collection. Yeah. So now they're decluttered, and he's organized. He's them. organized them. That's amazing. And now they're worth <laughs> a lot of money, most probably as well. So. Yeah, that's amazing so so start small start with a project that the child definitely has an interest in right um i would say never do it without them knowing okay because children with um asc often fixate on things and they won't necessarily demonstrate what they're fixated on until you've made the decision for them like they could have a box under the bed that's old and dusty they might check that it's there every single day, but you don't know they're doing that. So yeah, if they yeah, come yeah. back and it's not there, that's a very traumatic thing. Yeah, yeah. So it needs to be done with the child and it definitely needs to be done in a, in a very open and honest way. But again, it's a life skill. So it's mm. worth putting the time in. Yeah, yeah. 
And if they can be involved, then yeah, as you said, it will it will set as them up for life. And I think that's the same for any kid that if they can be involved Absolutely. in the process. Um, it, it's always good. Sorry, my cat's decided to join. Um, so this is a good time. <laughs> Finally, tell me how can people get in touch with you? Um, what areas do you cover in the UK? You know, tell us everything. How to get in touch? So I'm based in Chester, and I cover most of the northwest. So that would be North Wales, Wirral, South Manchester, Shrewsbury, and and all around there. Awesome. I um I've got a website which I can put on the on the link if you like, and I'm yes. always available by phone and text. And I've got links on Facebook and Instagram as well. Awesome. So I'm going to put your uh, website address on on the show notes as well so people can get in touch. And one day, finally, I'll come to the, that side of the world. I've never, it's, it's very embarrassing. I'm from Kent and I've never been to Wales or Scotland or Ireland. So I will. And then I'll come and visit you. Fabulous. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Um, I'm anyway, the cat. He's cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's lovely, but it's a pain in the ass. Um, but thank you so much for being on the show. And, That's you know, talk about this is it's so interesting and so helpful and there's so many people that need the help nowadays i'm seeing more and more diagnosis is happening especially here as well in the uae um so yeah no thank you so much um so yeah thanks everybody for listening i hope you found it incredibly useful and uh yeah have a listen next week for the next episode thanks a lot again take care bye